From Indiana to Camp Hill, Harrisburg to Greensburg, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, Pennsylvania Auditor General Tim DeFore has released an audit of the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission and found the highway has racked up more debt than all other state agencies combined. He joins us with details. School districts have had to navigate changes in funding as the pandemic cut some sources of revenue, while federal funds provided a boost. Frank Gamrat and Eric Montardi have an Allegheny Institute report. And once again, Congress has failed to pass a new federal budget on time, punting the decision until December. On her Lincoln Radio Journal commentary, Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania offers an alternative approach. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to Auditor General Tim DeFore in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. Max Baer, Chief Justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, was laid to rest this past week after passing away unexpectedly last weekend. With Bear's passing, Justice Deborah Todd becomes the first woman to serve as Chief Justice. The High Court has cut an activist path in recent years, becoming involved in controversial decisions on everything from pandemic-related restrictions to congressional redistricting. Justice Bear was slated to retire at the end of the year, so an election to a full 10-year term to fill his seat will be held in 2023. It is not yet known whether or not Governor Tom Wolf will attempt to appoint a temporary justice to serve in the interim. Pennsylvania's legal climate has received yet another notorious distinction, this time as one of the country's worst environments for nuclear verdicts. A nuclear verdict is where the jury awards $10 million or more in personal injury or medical malpractice lawsuits. The U.S. Chamber's Institute of Legal Reform recently published its Nuclear Verdict Report and found Pennsylvania is a leading state in the nation for such verdicts, with more than half of those coming from cases heard by the Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. Anyone who drives on the Pennsylvania Turnpike knows tolls go up every year. Despite those annual increases, the highway is swimming in a sea of red ink. Tim DeFore is Pennsylvania's Auditor General. He recently released results of an audit of Turnpike Commission finances, which includes some suggestions for how to move forward. He joins us now to discuss the audit. Tim, welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. Your department has released a report, an audit, on the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission. It has found some very significant financial issues. Can you give us just a few highlights of what it is that your audit found? Yeah, first of all, Loman, thank you for inviting me to be on your show, and thank you for your listeners for um, for tuning in. There were a couple of findings that we did have in our report of the Pennsylvania Turnpike. First of all, it's important to understand that Pennsylvania Turnpike is $13.2 billion in debt. And this is something that did not happen overnight. And it's going to take the legislature, the executive branch, and the Turnpike to work together to um, fix this problem. Because if it doesn't, if it's not fixed, then as I stated before, 
the turnpike is going to be the nicest piece of road in the country that no one is going to use because it's too expensive. Now, one of the things that we did do in our audit report, we had 23 recommendations. We had three, three findings and 23 recommendations, 21 recommendations for the turnpike and two for the general legislature. And what we found out is that the main reason for the turnpike's financial issues is because for years it had to pay or had to give annually $450 million to the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. And that was a direct result of Act 44 and Act 89. Now, when you have to pay that much to to another department, it, it makes it difficult for you to um, to make make ends meet. And the turnpike had to end up borrowing money to to make that payment. And then it had to end up borrowing money to pay back the money that it borrowed. So it could never, never, ever catch up. And as a result, the turnpike now has to, I believe, pay PennDOT $50 million a year. Well, if you're $13.2 billion in the hole, then it makes it hard to pay back anything. So one of the things that we recommended in our audit report that any payments from the turnpike to PINDA going forward should either be reduced or should not happen at all. Has there been any discussion, Tim, about how the turnpike is going to actually get out of this debt? I think your report found astonishingly that the turnpike debt is more than the all the Commonwealth debt aside from the turnpike. It would seem to be massive. Is there any way to even begin to start digging out of this hole? A couple things. And one of the areas is one of the things that I just got uh, just discussed. As far as what the turnpike has to get the pin dot on an annual basis, which is now $50 million a year, that should either be eliminated or should be reduced substantially. That is going to help. Another way that it helped the turnpike reduce, reduce its debt is by collecting some of the fees and some of the tolls that have not been collected. And this is going back to, to 2016 when there was a pilot project, I believe in Bucks County, where they tested the toll-by-plate where the camera takes a picture of your license plate and then sends you a bill. Well, that was expanded to the entire state during the um, pandemic. And people didn't understand toll by plate. And they felt that they were writing the turnpike for free. They were not. So enforcement's going to have to be stepped up to determine and find out who those individuals are who drove the turnpike, received the bill from the turnpike for using it, and have not paid. So there's a couple things that can be that can be done. Is there any penalty, Tim, for if you do get a toll by plate bill and you don't pay it? They're probably not large sums of money, which makes bill collection somewhat expensive. But has there been any discussion about perhaps, say, for example, I think I saw a legislative proposal where you couldn't renew your license if you had an outstanding toll owed to the turnpike. Has there been any discussion further about that? Well, currently there already is. What is supposed to happen? If you have, let's say, up to $500 worth of uncollected tolls, then your vehicle registration is to be suspended. That's something that is currently in place. However, if a vehicle owner happens to sell the car or buys another car, then that $500 goes away. So there has to be a better way of collecting collecting those tolls. And 
be perfectly honest, I'm not sure about the, the legislation, but as far as what they currently have, the Turnpike currently has, and this is something that we have in our um, in our audit report, that there needs to be just the better better enforcement of what's already out there. The Turnpike also has ongoing capital needs. I know anybody who's driven the Turnpike knows that there are various projects going on to expand it to six lanes. I think the ultimate goal is to have six lanes the whole way across the Commonwealth. We know there's tunnel obsolescence. Did your audit go into in any way taking a look at what those future capital needs are going to be and whether the Turnpike is going to be in a position financially to meet those needs? No, we pretty much just looked at what is happening today um, with regards to the current turnpike's current debt and not necessarily looking at any type of capital improvement projects going down the road, although I'm sure that the current debt can impact some of those capital improvement projects. But we currently looked at what's, what's going on right now. In terms of management of that debt, Tim, anything your audit turned up as to how the Turnpike is addressing, how it's structuring its debt and trying to keep the costs of it down as much as possible? Well, one of the things that that our our audit discovered was that the Turnpike, during the pandemic, did make some improvements where they reduced staff and they also cut some expenditures. But we also put in our audit report as as one of our 23 recommendations, the possibility for the Turnpike of looking at combining some of its, its work with other other departments. So it's as far as, and it could be something like like road maintenance, or it could be something else. Looking at, at working with another department like PennDOT and merging or working with PennDOT to improve, to, to, com- to combine some of the work that you do that's similar. Speaking of PennDOT, there have been various suggestions over the years. I'm not sure it's ever actually made it into a legislative proposal to possibly just have the Turnpike Commission absorbed into PennDOT, given the fact that it's been an independent commission since, well, since the Turnpike was constructed. Is that feasible? Is it possible? Is it something that your audit looked at? No, that's not something that we um, that we, we looked at. So that would be a, a good question for the general legislature or PennDOT or um, Turnpike itself. But that's not not something that we um, that we looked at in our, our audit report. Now, you do these audits, and you've done the audit that we've discussed here of the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission. Once you complete an audit, and you've had some very significant findings in this report, very complete, what do you do with it? I assume you don't just put it on a shelf and say it looks all that nice. What are the next steps? Yes. Yeah, so the next step is, so once our audit is completed, whoever is responsible, let's say in this case, the turnpike, whoever's responsible for the turnpike, they get a copy of the audit report. The governor will get a copy of the audit report, and so will the general legislature, including the chairs of the House and the Senate transportation committees. So they will get a copy of it. But one of the things that we also will do, we will also follow up on if our our recommendations with regards to our findings were in fact followed through. So we have the ability of following up on those on, on those findings in the next um, next audit cycle, which would be the next four years. However, we're going to keep a close eye on what the legislature is doing with our current audit report. 
For those of us who drive on the turnpike a lot, and even people who just use it occasionally, we've definitely noticed that the cost of riding on the turnpike has gone up and up and up. It is extremely high. Did this audit point to any potential relief down the road, or are we going to continue seeing these annual toll hikes? Well, one of the things that our audit report pointed to is that for the next, you're not going to hear this, the next 28 years, the turnpike is going to have to increase its fees in order to keep up with its current financial structure. Okay. Well, that's not overly promising. Hopefully, as, as we stated in our audit report, and um, as I stated very on in this conversation, that the legislature and the executive branch will come up with something where hopefully that, that doesn't have to happen. We have been talking with Pennsylvania Auditor General Tim DeFore. And Tim, just give us the, the very short synopsis here. For folks who may not be familiar, what all does the Auditor General do? Well, look at it this way. Whenever any tax dollars leave the state treasurer's office, then it's our responsibility to make sure that those funds are being spent the way they're supposed to be spent. So we are the um, checks and balances in state government. People refer to us as the, the fiscal watchdog, and I kind of like the being the taxpayer's advocate because we're the ones making sure that those funds are, in fact, being spent correctly, making sure that the programs that the state funds, whether it be they in the private sector or whether it be within state government, to make sure that those programs, such as the Turnpike, are running efficiently and that those funds are not being wasted and or abused. If we have folks who would like to read your audit on the Turnpike and or find out more about the Office of Auditor General, where can they go on the web? Our website is www.paauditor.gov. That's www.paauditor.gov. And you can find all our audit reports, and all, including information about myself and about the, um, the department on the website. Tim DeFore, Pennsylvania's Auditor General. Tim, thank you for taking time to be with us. Loman, thank you. The biggest part of property tax bills every year goes to your local school district. But that is just part of the funding formula for schools. As we learn from Frank Gamrat and Eric Montardi on this Allegheny Institute report. Hello and welcome to the Allegheny Institute Report on the Lincoln Institute Radio Journal. I'm Eric Montardi. Joining me today is Frank Gamrat, the Executive Director of the Institute. Your most recent policy brief, which is available at our website, www.alleghenyinstitute.org, looks at the 43 school districts in Allegheny County, Uh and it looks at some trend data. So basically going back to 2011-2012, that school year, getting a year in between, 2015 and 16, and then coming to the most recent data for 2020-2021. And what we'd like to discuss today with our listeners is what you found. And let's begin first with overall enrollment. What has happened with enrollment in Allegheny County's districts over that time period? Average daily membership is the term used by the Department of Education. It basically counts all the students that for which the district is financially responsible. And so, you know, obviously, you want to look at how many kids are in the district. In 2011-2012 school year, there were 43 districts in Allegheny County with 152,629 students ADM. And of course, that's not too bad. Pittsburgh Public School is our largest district at 28,200 plus students, and then drops off significantly to suburban Mount Lebanon at 8,300. And we have three districts that are under 1,000 students. Cornell, Duquesne, and Clareton are all sitting at the under 1,000 number. We want to look at, okay, what happened? We had done a brief a couple of months ago looking at population 
in in the metro area and we notice that the population has not grown it's actually fallen a little bit so the follow-up thought to that is what happened to the school age kids so if we we go forward a few years to the 15-16 school year those same 43 districts had a total of 148,400 plus ADM uh, we dropped three percent much to my thinking that we would lose school age students we in fact did and what was really surprising to me is 34 of the 43 districts or 80 percent had experienced a decline to their average daily membership totals. Wilkinsburg had lost uh, 19.5 percent and Steel Valley had lost uh, almost 13 percent. Now what makes it interesting is for those locally in our area, Wilkinsburg decided to send their kids to the Pittsburgh Public Schools but they had done it after my data year. At this point in time Wilkinsburg was hemorrhaging students at almost 20%, and they didn't send their high schoolers to Pittsburgh until the 16-17 school year. The largest gains were suburban South Fayette at 18% and Duquesne at 8.7%. Duquesne's another interesting case because in the early 2000s, and Duquesne was under state oversight and told to send their high schoolers off to neighboring districts. So they had already lost their high schoolers to the neighboring districts, and then their middle schoolers went in 2012. So their increase only covers the K through five years. So those are the sort of the special cases involved. We come to the most recent date of the 2020-2021 school year, and we see that ADM's down yet again to 144,901, so another 2.4% drop from the 15-16 school year. 27 of the 43 districts had losses to uh, average daily membership. What's really interesting here is this notion of charter schools. In the 2019-2021 school year data, the Department of Education decided to separate charter school people out. Now, again, ADM is listed as the students that the school district is is fiscally or financially responsible for. And so in that 2020-21 school year, we found that there were just a little over 10,000 students in Allegheny County. That's about 7% of the total public school population for that year. In the 1920 year, the year, first year that the Department of Education broke them out, there were 8,926 pupils attending charter schools, about 6%. So let's add those 10,000 students back to the 2020-2021 results, and that brings you back up to 154,901. Ten years prior, there were 152,000. So in 10 years, the school-age population in Allegheny County only grew 1.5%. Now, the implications for that are pretty simple. School-age students coming through the population ranks, eventually they have to enter the workforce. And without a growing workforce, it's really hard to get an economy to grow. So that was sort of the eye-opener for me in, in this brief was the lack of school-age students coming through in the last 10 years, and that's not going to be a good thing uh, going forward for our economy. So now we want to look at the, the financial side of everything, the revenues, and of course the expenditures. And revenues, uh, as everyone in Pennsylvania is well aware, come from three sources, local, state, and federal. Our state local revenues are typically the largest portion. Uh, in Allegheny County in the 2021 school years, local revenues, which for us is property taxes and wage taxes, came in at about six. 62.6% of overall funding. The range was a low of 11% for Duquesne to a high of almost 82% for Quaker Valley. Statewide 
funds are based on a formula, and we've written about that formula in many different briefs. The average statewide support for Allegheny County was 34.4%. And again, the richer the school district, the fewer dollars you get from the state. The poorer the school district, the more dollars you get from the state. So we're going to flip this. Quaker Valley, which is one of the wealthier school districts, only got 15% of their revenues from the state, whereas Duquesne, one of the poorest, got 80% from the state. And Pittsburgh, our largest school district, received 41.5% of their revenues from the state, about $288 million of $693 million in total. The, the big increase was, of course, from the federal. Federal, you typically was not a whole lot of money for our school districts. In fact, they're just a handful of percentages. But when the pandemic hit, the federal government poured a little bit more money into it. When you look at the federal money from 2011-2012, the federal money in Allegheny County districts actually fell by 20%. They had been getting $2.2 million in 2011-12 to $2.8 million in 15-16. From 15-16 to 20-20-21, which is the pandemic year and beyond, the federal funding jumped 48% up to $3.3 million. So a little bit of that money came in from stimulus money. And of course, that then begs the question, what's going to happen when the stimulus money runs out? Will school districts be scrambling to pay for it? Or was it just a temporary one-time fix? How did they use it? Those are questions that need to be asked going forward. Frank, connected to the revenue side is obviously then the spending. Mm -hmm. And your brief talks about per-pupil expenditures. How did they change in this time period in the school district? Total expenditures per pupil, and again, that's expenditures divided by the average daily membership. They actually jumped uh, 43.9% during the entire span of the study from 2011-12 to 2020. 21. And you had quite a bit of that increase. And a lot of it comes from instructional expenditures. I, I wanted to pull that out to the side because you know, total expenditures cover everything, covers capital, debt, administration, transportation, etc. So I wanted to look at instructional expenditures, which are about 55, 57% of a school district's budget. When you look at those those instructional expenditures, they kept moving and growing as, as the years went by and really did keep pace with with the revenues. Frank, great stuff as always, and we encourage our listeners to visit our website, www.alleghenyinstitute.org. For Frank Gamrat, this is Eric Montardi. This has been the Allegheny Institute Report on the Lincoln Institute Radio Journal. October 1st was the deadline for Congress to adopt a new federal budget. They again missed the deadline. Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania offers a suggestion for changing how Congress approaches budgeting on this Lincoln Radio Journal commentary. Congress has again avoided the government shutdown cliff with President Biden signing a short-term continuing resolution, or CR, into law the last Friday of September. This bill will fund the federal government through December 16th. Americans for Prosperity issued the following statement after this all-too-predictable Capitol Hill play of passing another CR. Congress needs a comprehensive and deliberative approach to setting federal budget priorities instead of today's pattern of lurching from crisis to crisis. The American people deserve better than massive waste, frustration, debt, and other bad outcomes. Regularly taking the country to the brink of shutdowns should be a red-flashing signal of a dysfunctional system, but it's now become standard procedure. 
failure to control spending and debt over the last 15 years, but especially during the pandemic, created today's inflation crisis and broader economic turmoil. The good news is that Congress can fix this. In 2019, Americans for Prosperity issued a report outlining an alternative to stopgap funding bills and budgeting by crisis. The report examines the cost of past government shutdowns and outlines a path to preventing more by using automatic CRs. By providing for continuing funding for any appropriations bills not passed and signed into law, auto CRs would prevent costly shutdowns and eliminate governing from one fiscal crisis to the next. An auto CR is needed for several reasons. First, shutdowns are costly. The last three government shutdowns cost taxpayers more than $4 billion. Second, shutdowns are disruptive. Shutdowns are highly disruptive for businesses and their workers that sell the government because they cannot receive payments or in some instances even provide services and products during a shutdown. Third, shutdowns do not achieve policy goals. Notable shutdowns in 2018, 2014, and 1996 failed to achieve policy victories, and as history shows, led to even more partisan gridlock. Fourth, an auto CR would prevent shutdowns and the wasteful costs to taxpayers, businesses, and families, and it would also eliminate situations leading to high-stakes, must-pass legislation. And fifth, an auto CR would keep spending under control for at least a short period because continuing resolutions typically fund the government at the same level as the previous year. An auto CR would remove the inflection point that is often used to force spending higher year after years. The potential pitfalls that Congress must avoid include automatically increasing any spending. An auto CR must not put the rest of the budget on an automatic upward path through built-in metrics that keep spending under control. Congress should also caution from giving itself a free pass. An auto CR must not incentivize lawmakers to avoid writing comprehensive appropriations bills each year. And last, an auto CR must not incentivize even faster spending growth. An auto CR should not remove incentives to keep a modicum level of fiscal discipline and drive up spending further. When America is led to the brink of a government shutdown, the high-pressure situation is used as political leverage by both sides to advance bad policy. Crisis scenarios caused by Washington's broken budget process places unnecessary pressure on Congress to let wasteful spending and corporate welfare creep into must-pass legislation that gives lawmakers a license to hold their nose and vote or risk being responsible for a shutdown. But there is a better way, an auto CR. We ask you to share our report with your member of Congress. To receive a copy, 
please email our inbox at infopa at afphq.org. That's infopa at afphq.org. I'm Ashley Klingensmith, State Director with Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania. Keep up to date with what our team is working on by liking our Facebook page, by searching at PAAFP, and by following us on Twitter at AFP Pennsylvania. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our website, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 27 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WLLF-FM in Hermitage, WGET-AM and WGTY-FM in Gettysburg, along with WADJ-AM in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, all of whom have helped to underwrite the cost of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.